Thank you for downloading this episode of the Wings Museum podcast, the first of 2020. So we're into March now, the museum is open again, and every time I come there seems to be something different, something big, something shuffled around. I'm with uh, Daniel and George, our regular contributors to the podcast. Dan, what's new? Quite a lot new this year, actually. In fact, it's probably one of our biggest revamps to date um, because we've been at this location now for about 10 years. What we're actually standing in at the moment is a new display that we're just actually finished setting up today and uh, you've actually offered your assistance. The hands are still dirty. Yeah, exactly, yeah. What we're looking at is we're in the bomber offensive section of the museum and we've got some artefacts that relate to Dunsfold, one of Surrey's airfields, where um, there's quite a bit of history there, a lot lot of post-war history, but we're specifically concentrating on its wartime history. And uh, that had RAF Mitchells of 180 Squadron, 320 Dutch Squadron and also 98 Squadron. So we're standing here at the moment and one of the biggest artefacts we actually only collected last week and it's a a landing flap from a Mitchell and it's actually from uh, a B-25 Mitchell serial number FW188. It successfully made it over the target but unfortunately it had a hung up bomb which the crew were aware of and uh, I believe that the crew tried to get the bomb to release even by lowering a man into the bomb bay and trying to hack away at the bomb release mechanism but alas this 500 pounder stayed put so getting short of fuel they had little option but head for home so needless to say they made a very soft landing and this is where the tragedy starts is that halfway down the runway the bomb released and of course because they'd been over the target the bombs were fully armed and uh, it did detonate and the Mitchell was uh, pretty much destroyed and written off. All the crew were killed. I believe the tail gunner survived for a short time but died later. But the remains of the Mitchell were bulldozed off the end of the runway and into the woods surrounding Dunsfold. And I fast forward now to about the 1980s when British Aerospace were at the site and one of the employees there heard this story and he discovered quite a lot of the wreckage still in the woods at the time. Relatively intact and sort of sensibly preserved? Um, I think, well, what we're looking at here is about probably 10 foot long um, and probably, what, two and a half, three feet wide. It's only quite a large section, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, it is, and I suppose notably it's completely peppered with bomb splinters, so, um, you know, it's pretty evident that there's evidence from that explosion there. But over the years, various people removed items from the, the site. Soon the rumour got around that there were bits of aircraft laying around, so you know, various pieces were removed by collectors. And uh, this piece came to the museum, and in fact we've actually got the port and starboard flap. This is the more complete one, and this is, let's just get this right, this is the starboard flap, because I can see remnants of the green upper surface camouflage and it tapers at one end, which kind of gives you a clue as to which way round it goes. So that's been added to the display, and it goes next to the board where there's some other artefacts from that particular Mitchell. I think it's just such a sort of sad story that these men were returning home having completed their mission, and, you know, in normal circumstances, they might well have got away with it, but uh, fate was not on their side that day. And unbelievably, there was actually another crew that was landing after this particular aircraft and they had a full hang-up so they had all bombs on board in an armed state 
and uh, they actually successfully touched down and uh, needless to say they made it back to dispersals where the bombs could be disposed of and I suppose it makes you think what went through the pilot's mind having seen from the air from the circuit um, what happened to the previous aircraft. Element of the luck of the draw as well and how things fall and uh, whether it's your day. Well, exactly. I think that's the thing with wartime is that it's not just the enemy, the risk of being shot down or hit by flak. It's just the kind of they were dangerous times and uh, often it was the thing that they least expected that caught them out. But uh, moving on, we got in this particular section, we got four other boards relating to other Dunsfold Mitchells that uh, were shot down and there's a couple of collisions here as well and there's some quite... uh, sort of poignant artefacts from the cockpit area and some burnt perspex there that I'm looking at. So, yeah, that's the, that's the kind of the Dunsfold section. I mean, we are always struggling for space, so there's an awful lot of stuff in storage. There's an element of reorganisation that goes on each time a new bit arrives. Well, yeah, exactly. As, as demonstrated this morning, like just by um, sort of rethinking things, it's possible to move one thing to another area and create another wall to get some displays in place and of course this isn't the only Mitchell related thing that's been going on over the winter I know that uh, quite a lot of work has been done to the various other bits of Mitchell that I've seen around the place well, it's been a bit of a Mitchell winter this year um, we've been working on the Mitchell that was recovered from Russia that was the the Mitchell that was bombing a, a Japanese target so that was part of the Aleutian war against uh, the Americans against the Japanese in the North Pacific so we, we've done a few um, uh, adjustments and repairs on, on the cockpit section we've got from that crash Mitchell. And we've also been working on the Mitchell that was known as Bedsheet Bomber. And we're, um, we're, we're trying to get that back together. So we're working on various components of that at the moment as well. And you can actually hear in the background <laughs> somebody riveting. <laughs> yeah, there's always something going on, isn't there? <laughs> And, of course, the, the, there's members of the public here now as well. Does this slightly make it a little bit more awkward to the, do the larger things? Is there anything that we've missed over winter? We try and keep the noise down when we're doing jobs such as riveting and drilling, etc. But it interests the public, and they often ask if they can uh, come and see what we're doing, and, and they ask us about what we're doing as well. What the hell's going on, yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> well they, you know, I mean, they all fly on aeroplanes in their holidays, but they don't know how aeroplanes are put together. So it makes a bit of interest for them. The sounds are kind of authentic to the time anyway. This is a sound that would have rung across many airfields, you know, as they're kind of repairing the aircraft ready for another mission. So we also describe it as all part of the atmosphere. But the work goes on in the workshop, and although that isn't accessible to the public, if it's a guided tour or a group booking, we will take members of the public into the workshop to show them the kind of things that we do. And there's quite a number of projects in there at the moment. Perhaps we'll wander in there a little bit later. So we've moved back right next to the front desk, actually. And one of the first things you see as you walk through the front door now is um, a framework of the front end of something. It arrived a few weeks ago. What is it, George? It's a Bristol Beaufort. A Bristol Beaufort is a, a quite a rare aeroplane now. To my knowledge, there's one more in the UK, which is in the Royal Air Force Museum, and I think that's about it. It was a Second World War torpedo bomber, and they were operated by the Royal Air Force 
in the UK and in the Mediterranean and by the Australian Air Force down in the Pacific War in Papua New Guinea. And the example we're standing next to actually was recovered in, uh, I believe, 1974 from Papua New Guinea. It was Royal Australian Air Force, 100 Squadron. Um, from 100 Squadron Royal Air Force, wasn't it? It was, yes. Uh, so, it, you know, it has seen sort of RAF history, but ended up in Papua New Guinea, where its role was mainly attacking airfields and anti-shipping. Underneath the pilot's seat is a kind of very large kind of cavity, like a duct, and that's actually where the torpedo went. So right, that, That's um, not normal on a bomber aircraft and things around here, is it? No, not really. No, There's not many aircraft that can actually uh, take a torpedo, but it's a little bit unnerving to think that the pilot was sitting on top of his torpedo. So um, I dare say low flying was the order of the day to avoid being hit. It certainly would focus the mind a little bit, wouldn't it? So what are the plans with this one, George? Well, we're doing a bit of work at the moment. Tr- the guys are trying to work out where the canopy glazing goes, but uh, eventually we'll be cleaning it up, preparing it for exhibition. There's, a, there's some repairs to be done on the structure, but we'll be reskinning it, painting it, I hope, and uh, it, it'll be a very, very nice uh, example of a very rare aeroplane. And these aeroplanes, they did a lot of work in the UK based down in uh, Hampshire at uh, an airfield called Thorny Island, which is very, very close to Portsmouth with RAF Coastal Command. But their real claim to fame is they they were based in Malta. And uh, during the Second World War, when the Germans were trying to uh, supply their army in North Africa... The Beauforts based in Malta would sink a lot of the shipping supplying the Germans, which is why uh, Rommel uh, hadn't got the, the, the fuel and power to strike back at El Alamein because these aeroplanes had denied him of his, his supplies and fuel. I mean, it shows how all of the little bits go together to achieve the, the greater aim in these campaigns. Yes, of course. And when something like this comes in, is it a concern that there's sort of, you know, perhaps a few sharp edges and things? I mean, how much work needs doing before it goes on public display? There, there was a little bit of preparation work done on this airframe. Of course, we don't, there are jagged edges. The aircraft had crashed in its history. And uh, we've got to kind of um, make sure that there's nothing that's going to um, uh, injure any of the public. Uh, we, we try to look after our visitors as best we can but uh, this one isn't too bad uh, some preparation work had been done on it when it was first recovered in Australia um, it, it's been partly disassembled and we, we're slowly trying to work out all the we've got a box of bits with it and we're trying to work out where every, every bit fits at the moment it's a big, big jigsaw puzzle yes it is and unfortunately it's a 70 or 80 year old jigsaw puzzle so something was taken off many years ago and we've got to sort out where it goes back again and then of course any bits that are missing we've got to try and manufacture those as best we can yeah we've actually got quite a lot of the parts for this um, particular cockpit um, we're fortunate that we've got the control column the pilot seat rudder pedals, main instrument panel, all the important bits. So the, the plan is, as George said, is to kind of work out the jigsaw puzzle. There's undoubtedly going to be some bits missing, I'm sure. Would you like me to show you the parts that we have in the, uh, the workshop? Yeah. So as you come into the workshop, you can't help noticing that there's quite a few bigger items than normal. <laughs> but uh, where, where are these, the bits for the um, Beaufort? 
Well, they're just up there on the shelf at the moment. Um, we've photographed everything that we have, so uh, a lot of it is labelled, which obviously helps. Um, and we do have a parts manual as well, which also helps. The, the Haynes manual of Beauforts? Yeah, it is kind of like a Haynes manual. Um, so we'll be putting that to good use. But we've also, you probably can't help but notice, two big lumps that we've got in the workshop at the moment. Yeah, it, to, to me, the way it's sitting there looks like one of those VTOL... Um uh, flying bedstead things with those legs like that or, or the lunar module yeah well yeah you could say that to me it looks like um an r2600 from a mitchell and these are that would have been my second guess so these are the twin row radial engines from bedsheet bomber um which we do actually have the whole airframe um but much of it is in storage because we are very limited for space but uh, as you can see it kind of needs bringing up to display standard so we got the engines here that are pretty much complete. There's one engine that's missing a couple of cylinders, but the rest is there. Basically, the plan is now we're actually awaiting some special tools to come in from America so that we can actually start working on these. They only come in probably sort of three weeks ago. And behind this engine, you can see the two tail fins from the B25 Mitchell. And directly above that, we're looking at one of the landing flaps which is actually the same as the one that we were talking about earlier in the Dunsfold section, So, uh, except that one has obviously got a bit of a story to tell. So, so there's actually quite a lot to look at in here. We have to start opening this up a bit more. Well, it's funny you say that. There is actually a group, Friends of the Museum, and there's been a couple of suggestions there that, uh, that we do actually do a workshop tour, and that's something that we might well consider for the future because there's, there's quite a lot of interesting things in here. Up the other end... We got Ron there is working on the bombardier's nose from Bedsheet Bomber. So we got the main cockpit section, which uh, we're sort of working on the interior mainly. And Ron is putting right some damage that was done, unfortunately, about 12 months ago when it was being lifted from its storage. And there was a mishap. This didn't happen under our custody, I might add. Right. But. Um, <laughs> The poor old girl did uh, graze the concrete a little bit, so Ron has been remaking some of the very front frames of the nose, which is now complete, and he's just moved into the skin work now. So we got the the shape back now, and then we'll start working on what's commonly called as like a birdcage, which is basically the sort of plexiglass glazing section, which again we have, but we've taken it off to concentrate on the airframe repairs but there's a little bit of work needed on that and then it can be reunited with the actual main cockpit section so to me it sounds like an awful lot of very clever skilled things needed to do this kind of work george do you have these skills in your team yes we do we're 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 not youngsters anymore but um we've all been engineers all our lives um Ron's pretty good at um, fabricating stuff and uh, we put all his skills to good use. Uh, Keith and I are both retired uh, engineers from British Airways and uh, we've worked on aeroplanes all our lives, so uh, we using our skills. Um, anybody hearing this that knows us probably say we, we didn't, do, didn't use them too much when we worked for British Airways, <laughs> but we certainly are now. And it's, it's nice to keep your hand back in to what you, what you did before. And as always in these programmes, we sort of will always say if there are people out there with these skills, you'd like to see them, wouldn't you? We would welcome them with open arms. <laughs> yeah, we're all getting on a little bit now and uh, we do appreciate when anybody comes along and joins us. 
we uh, have a group of people coming every Wednesday. That's our volunteer day here. Uh, and that's when we're all in the workshop and um, using the equipment we've got. Uh, I can see Keith actually working on a folder. Keith's making some parts, or he's making a part for Bedsheet Bomber, which is a, a B25 Mitchell. Keith and I are both involved in making an assembly, which is part of the window mechanism, the pilot sliding window. So uh, the ones that we've got are very corroded. So we've, we're replacing them. So we're, we're getting we're starting with flat sheet of metal, and folding it, bending it, persuading it into the right shape to fit on our aeroplane. And that sounds again to me like an awful lot of work. It is an awful lot of work. It's not uh, a morning's work, is it? <laughs> no, we've been on this particular job for uh, uh, two weeks now. So when I say two weeks, two two, <laughs> two, two Wednesdays, two Wednesdays, <laughs> and it's going to go on for a few more. But um, we've got to get it right. And, and of course, it's not like we're fitting a, a bit to an aeroplane. We've actually got to work out the best way of making it uh, and sometimes even make up tools. And um, in this case, uh, we've had a, a mould made up out of wood to bend it round because it's never uh, a straightforward bend and um, it's always angled, shaped in such a way that it fits the aeroplane perfectly. Uh, and we've got to make it look uh, as presentable as possible using hand tools as though it was made, factory made, um, many years ago. There's another thing on the bench over here which is quite interesting. Those are a set of rudder pedals, so four pedals, and they're out of the Russian cockpit that we've been restoring, the B-25 Mitchell. But I'm going to sound quite nerdy now by just pointing out something quite interesting, that on each pedal is the North American uh, logo. Um, obviously, North American manufactured the Mitchell, but it also manufactured, famously, the Mustang. And the nerdy bit is is that it has the prefix number of 73, which is actually a Mustang number. But on both the Mitchells that we have, um, the rudder pedals have the 73 part number. So they're actually, they just fitted Mustang pedals in the Mitchell. So there's no sort of part-specific thing for the Mitchell. And presumably during wartime or development of these things, you almost just took something off the shelf. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think the Americans were actually quite switched on there with their kind of mass production in that they did make things simple for themselves. Um, an example is on the Dakota that uh, the C-47... Towering over us. Yeah, big old fin, tail fin and rudder there that we're looking at. Um, that's the centrepiece of the museum, so visitors can walk inside that and go up into the cockpit. And the Americans called it Skytrain, we called it a Dakota. But we had the rudder, but what we didn't have were the brackets to attach the rudder to the tail fin. And we had the elevators, which obviously, due to space limitations, they aren't fitted. In fact, we've got the whole tail assembly, but it's not fitted because we don't have the space. But what we twigged was that it was exactly the same bracket on the elevators as it was on the rudder and also exactly the same bracket from port and starboard, whereas if it had been a British aircraft, it would have been a different part for each and every one, so port and starboard is different, whereas on the American aircraft, it's the same. So obviously, when you're trying to find these parts, it makes it a hell of a lot easier if the part is generically used over more applications. A bit more interchangeable. Exactly, yeah. So... uh, we do quite like American aircraft for that reason, <laughs> and and also all the uh, nuts and bolts, and which which all need replacing on these old aircraft. Um, 
they're all still available off the shelf. Uh, you know, you can literally pick up a catalogue and make up an order of the bits that you need and it'll arrive. Whereas aircraft stuff, the for threads, the bolts, the screws, the hardware has all changed. Um, it is out there, but it's very much limited. So therefore, it's far more expensive and harder to find, whereas the American aircraft are a lot easier. Now, one of the jobs that we spoke about at the end of last year was the Merlin engine. Now, it had had a little bit of a pop in a pipe at the end of last year. Is that all sorted? Yeah, thankful to say it is. Uh, So last year, at the very end of the season and on the very last engine run, we had a coolant hose split that was actually the original hose from 1943 so it's not bad going then <laughs> no it didn't do any damage to the engine but uh it, you know and it, we were very quick to shut it down anyway there's actually a, a kill switch fitted on the engine which you can just flick and it instantly kills the engine so that's within seconds we had closed the engine down we kind of waited over the winter because um well the weather has been so lousy that uh it's not really been kind of engine running weather so, and that is an outside activity, isn't it, really? You don't do it indoors. No, no, quite. So we've had our sort of chief engineer on the Merlin who is actually a current serving engineer at Gatwick. So he's responsible for the maintenance side of things. So he's been all over the engine and uh, needless to say, we've now replaced the hose with a new hose, which sounds easy enough, but it, you know, being a British aircraft, it, it was unobtainable. So, Is it a suitably daft diameter um the actual diet the, o- the od is all right but it was the wall thickness was is different on modern hoses because they're obviously made in a different way than they were then so we were had a little bit of a delay tracking down the, the right hose and of course we ordered quite a long length of it so that if this happens again we've got the means of fixing it um straight away but uh Last Thursday, we did um, a little unofficial test run, and she fired into life. So, and in fact, running better than she was before. So, we are now setting the dates for the 2020 engine runs. Uh, the first one is on the 8th of May, um, VE day. And hearing a Merlin start up is, well, in my opinion, it's a nice sound, not as noisy as you might think. Uh, whereas jet engines are just somewhat, I think unpleasant starting up especially if you're close to them with the merlin on the trailer out the side here you can actually stand quite close i mean you you feel the vibration but it's not loud loud is it no probably no louder than i mean some of these engines are fitted in cars you know and it, it is a nice sound but just to kind of point out again i think we've probably said this on other podcasts that um the significant thing about this particular engine is that it's the only Halifax configuration Merlin engine, Merlin 20 engine that is running we think in in Europe so that kind of makes it totally unique but also not only that, it's from a operational loss so we know that this engine has flown 14 bombing missions Um, the last one was on the 27th of July, it was uh, attacking Hamburg and it was on its way to its target, and it was uh, shot down by a night fighter ace, um, and it crashed near Rendsburg in Germany. The crash site was found by a local aviation historian, and at that time in 2010, I think it was, they found some unexploded bombs there, which prompted the investigation by the German Bomb Disposal Unit, 
who had some quite large readings. Some of them were bombs, but obviously four of those readings were the Merlin engines, and they were at a depth of about a metre and a half in a swamp. They approached uh, the Wings Museum to see if we would like to give them a home, which, of course, we did. But the condition of them was unique as well in that they were very intact, well-preserved, which enabled us to get one of them running. So it's 90% that original engine. I mean, there's a few things that have been replaced because they would have caused ongoing maintenance issues or, you know, if we had tried to repair it, it would have created a, a nasty oil leak. I mean... I will point out that there are oil leaks on it, and there were at the time. You know, you see the photographs of these aircraft at dispersal. There's always a puddle underneath them, and that's normally from the oil that's leaking out. I think most engines of that time did. More recently, Land Rovers and things, they always leak, don't they? Well, absolutely. I mean, I've heard some of the veterans here at the museum say that it's actually the aircraft marking its territory, so <laughs> that's one way of looking at it. And oddly enough, I was talking to one of the visitors about an hour ago, and standing next to the three engines that haven't been restored, and I sort of said, and you know, that the fourth of these is the one that runs. And he gave me such a strange look, as if to say, "Do you really know what you're on about?" Because <laughs> clearly, those ones don't run. I mean, how how much effort would it really take to get all four of them going? Um, quite a lot of effort. It's certainly doable, but um, it would also take quite a lot of money because, obviously, uh, you know, that there were quite a lot that we could do ourselves. Um, but a lot of the final stages were done at Flight International and I'm not entirely sure whether they're actually still undertaking that kind of work so that might also present a problem. Have you put them off? (laughs) (laughs) Quite possibly. I I know we put off the, um, the chap that volunteered to do the exhausts because right from the outset saxophone style exhausts and it they look like a saxophone which is why they're called a saxophone style exhaust designed to suppress the flame at night obviously the RAF mainly operated at night of course they were crushed from the you know when they these engines went into the ground they were kind of flattened still intact but flattened and kind of distorted so he was blacksmith he said well he's never been beaten by a bit of metal yet so he cut them apart, had them in the forge, got them glowing hot and started piece by piece reforming them and then rewelding them together. And he's done a fantastic job, but I think it very nearly ended his career, I think. <laughs> he's, he's certainly not leaping to do any more. No, he actually said he doesn't want to be named for that reason because <laughs> he doesn't want to do any more. But um, I think this metal, it was so tough that by the time he got it out of the forge and to the bench to start shaping it, it had virtually cooled down. It, it had to be so hot for it to even change its shape, you know. So, um, Is it a special material? It is. I can't recall what it is, but, um, I mean, all aircraft exhausts at that time were made from the same material, and they are incredibly hard. And I suppose it just goes to show the impact damage on, you know, from a crash that they're that hard, but yet they can just be folded over like they're a piece of tin foil. So other than engine run days uh, i know that we've got a couple of veterans events coming up yeah we have we've got uh, our bomber boys event which we run every year and that's where we have a group of bomber command veterans attending the museum um i mean they're the youngest i believe is 96 so um they're quite remarkable and they they attend here at the museum they're quite fond of the museum actually because uh, they're obviously surrounded by the artifacts and the aircraft that they used to operate and fly 
and that they remember. So they sign items of memorabilia like books and prints for people. And uh, George Dunn, who is actually a Halifax pilot, if, if he's around and the engine is serviceable at that time, he will actually start the engine for us. So um, we always offer him a pair of earphones, but he always, he always declines. And he, he just remarks that he said, this is nothing, I used to run four of these. So he would definitely be up for running all four, if it would be possible. But we have, new to this year, we have another veteran signing event and that is on the 2nd of May, and that's a Falklands War signing event. It's a development from the Bomber Boys. This is a museum remembering the kind of the, the conflict and the sacrifices, and of course, uh, unfortunately, that didn't stop in World War II. Uh, it, it continued into other conflicts, and this one kind of concentrates on the short war that happened in the Falklands, and this is all about veterans sharing their experiences members of the public chatting to them and you know I think it often does them good to talk about their experiences I mean obviously some of them have witnessed some quite horrible horrible things but I think it is important that we remember conflicts to kind of appreciate exactly what war means and of course that isn't actually all that long ago I mean there's there's been more since but whereas the war is now perhaps drifting a little bit further away from the memory of a lot of people I mean, this, this one's I mean, within my lifetime, within your lifetime. We remember it happening. Yeah, that's right. I think I was um, eight years old when uh, the Falklands War was on. So, you know, I remember the conflict being on TV. And as I say, it was short-lived. And I think these things can be quite easily forgotten, uh, which is why it's, you know, important as time moves on is to, you know, don't allow too much time to pass you know talk to these people now i mean like our sort of bomber command veteran signing they're not getting any younger i mean unfortunately the time will come when none of these men are around to chat to anymore now is the time to talk to them ask some questions i mean you know it's the same with my granddad he recalled the war but um he's not with us anymore and i sort of wish that you know at the time that i talked to him more about it and of course actually we're encouraging people to talk more about traumatic experiences now whereas you know in 1945 1946 there was just so much of it perhaps everyone was just told to you know keep it down don't talk about it yeah that's right I think um, especially if you've lived through something like that and you've witnessed things I think all these veterans get to a point in their life where they start processing things and maybe you know the idea being that they get a bit of closure from it I don't know that they ever really make sense of it because there's not sense in these things really but uh, a lot of these veterans, it opens up their kind of interest and, and their recollections and they often end up sort of speaking to their family members about things that they haven't spoken to them before. And this museum brings back the nostalgia and you know, the atmosphere of those times and it, and it helps them talk about it. And I think talking about anything like that is a good therapy, and needless to say, for people like me who are too, too young to witness World War II, hearing from the veteran themselves rather than sort of reading a history book is very important to keep up to date with the various goings on at the wings museum to get in touch and to listen to other episodes of the wings museum podcast visit www.wingsmuseum.co.uk